If you think that all of our EDs are created equal, you're wrong. We're going to do imaging tests where we can show you that you can get into trouble real easily. That's the danger here, and that's where we get sued. Any equivocal ultrasound would justify doing a CT. The husband would tell us how he remembered the discussion, but he hasn't got much brain left. That's not good. What is the reality? So you're now admitting to being moral scum. <laughs> well, I don't agree, honestly. I'm a believer in the Jack Bauer theory of the emergency department. David Williams talks about a case in Wisconsin, $17.4 million. Excuse me? 17 point what? Greg Henry here. Rick Bucata. Melly Herbert. And we're back with the July issue of Risk Management Monthly. Boys, this is terrific. We're here at a wonderful EMA course, having a great time, and we've got great topics. It couldn't get any better than this. Let's start out this month, Rick, and this, by the way, starts our fourth year of Risk Management Monthly. Oh, my God. So for those of you who have been listening and writing in, we appreciate it very much. And keep listening and keep writing in. We love it. And tell your friends. And tell your friends. I wish more of you would tell your friends. This month, we've got a topic, and that is the seductive nature of testing. The fact that we all do tests, and we think that with those tests, we've solved problems. So let's delve into that question and see if we are really getting to the bottom of things with testing. Rick. Oh, my God. Seductive? Really? We're going to do imaging tests, <laughs> a few imaging tests where we can show you that you can get into trouble real easily. And the fundamental problem here is that providers put undue confidence in the results of imaging tests over their clinical assessment of the patients. And we can see examples of people getting in trouble over and over and over again because they said, well, the CT was negative, but the fact is patients still had serious pathology. The other thing is the imaging test that you ordered is suboptimal to detect the pathology that you're looking for. You ordered the wrong test kind of thing or not the optimal test. Or there is no test which answers it at a certain level. I always (coughs) think we should start these sessions out by remembering every time they've done a study that looks at the question of inter-rater reliability. That is, if you give it to 10 radiologists, what does it say? There's always that 10 to 15 to 20% slop factor in there that you send the film to a general radiologist, maybe he's not the best at looking at CT scans and that sort of thing. How many of us have ever gotten a report in the morning saying, the senior resident in radiology misread the film. And by the way, oh yeah, there is a little blood on that. Maybe you shouldn't have given them TPA. Well, we're going to start out with the CT and abdominal pain because it is so ubiquitously ordered. And I think there are a couple of things that are important here. Number one, the skill of the radiographer has been determined over and over and over to be the primary determinant of the results that you're going to get. It's not about contrast. It's about the radiographer. And let me give you an example of a paper that pointed this out. Here's a study of 103 people slated to have surgery because the surgeon says you've got appendicitis and 83% of them had appendicitis. They had these CTs read by three different radiologists. They had a radiology resident read the CT, a community radiologist, and then an academic radiologist. The sensitivity of the radiology resident 81%. 81%. He missed 19% of the cases. 19%. That's a lot. That's worse than the physical exam. 
way worse than the physical exam. The community radiologist, 88% sensitivity, missed one out of 12%, one out of eight. That's bad. And the academic radiologist, 95% sensitivity, one out of 20 was missed. So the radiologist is the variable, and this is just one paper that makes it very, very clear. Yeah, that's really important. We think of tests like CT scans as objective, but they are subjective tests. They're not digital. They're not yes-no. It's subjective. So it's very important to remember, and it's interesting that it's so bad in the community compared to academics. I mean, you're missing an extra one for every 10 scans you do. That's not good. Yeah, now this is one paper, and I don't know whether it was 64 versus the 32 versus the 2, but the principle is what is important here. The other thing is is that most papers on CTs and abdominal pain are written in academic centers where there is going to be a higher level of sensitivity reading because they're doctors who just read abdominal CTs. You cannot extrapolate that to the universe and say, well, this is what's happening in my community hospital and there should be a 95% sensitivity because when you look at lots of these papers, which I have done, if you take the overall average of what's published in the literature, the sensitivity of CT for appendicitis is around in the low 90s, 94, 95%. But that is not all comers when it comes to radiologists. And so you can't take that home and say, well, this study misses 1 in 20, when your community doctor may miss more. The other issue I wanted to get into was contrast. Now, this is not related, I don't think, particularly, Greg, to medical legal issues, unless the radiologist said, well, had you ordered a contrast study, we would have been able to give you a better reading than, had you ordered a contrast study, we would have been able to give you a better reading than we would have. One of these cover-your-butt kind of interpretations. (laughs) If they're saying that, by the way, there is no study that backs that up, but that's okay. There is one paper that you really ought to know about with regards to oral contrast or not, and there's a citation for it in the notes. It's a meta-analysis and review of 23 studies in adults with the suspected appendicitis, and it concluded that CTs without contrast, oral contrast, were at least as good, at least as good as those with oral contrast. There are other studies that confirm this for sure, but here's an analysis of 23 papers. Now, some say the kids, because they have less fat, those are the ones who ought to get contrast, We have papers that say there's little evidence to support that, particularly now that you have better quality machines. This idea of IV contrast. I saw one of our doctors ordering a CT for appendicitis with oral and IV. It's like, what are you thinking about? IV is about solid organs. It's about liver. It's about kidneys. It's about the pancreas. It's about spleens. It's about mesenteric ischemia, but it's not about appendicitis. The best part of this article, Rick, was that it appeared in the American Journal of Surgery. So what I'm hoping is that the surgeons will start coming along with us now on this issue of not having to have oral contrast. You know, a lot of our surgeons look at their own films, and if they can be convinced of this, I think this is a good thing. I think one of the key things that you should remember is if you think this person has a high suspicion for appendicitis clinically, the first thing that you ought to do is call the surgeon. Do not order the CT because you say, well, the surgeon's going to want it anyway. No. Because the fact of the matter is if the CT is falsely negative, that person's still going to go to surgery. And I would think that the people who don't need CTs are those who have obvious clinical appendicitis. And we're going to be bludgeoned by those who say we're ordering too many of these tests. Well, one of the things I think you need to be aware of is if a person has a high clinical index of suspicion for appendicitis, the person you ought to be doing in terms of a phone call is not the radiology department, but the surgery department. A surgeon should come down and see that patient. Because what if you order a CT and it's negative? Does that mean that the person's not going to go to surgery? Hold on, wait, man. 
what is this? They ought to come down and see the patient. It's now 9 o'clock at night. And believe me, there's nobody upstairs in my place that's coming down to see anybody. they got to come in. So I only point out that this is very much situationally dependent. When there's an in-house surgeon who comes down and put his hands on, that may be different than when they actually have to drive in. When they have an outhouse surgeon? They have an outhouse the surgeon, surgeon and an outhouse, outhouse surgeon. surgeon. Okay. Right. Well, I don't agree, honestly, because I think that six, eight, or ten millisieverts is going to be delivered to somebody unnecessarily just because you don't want to have that surgeon come in who needs to come in anyway. Right. You're the one who paints the picture about how intensely clinically apparent this is. That person needs to come in, and I think that we aid and abet the overuse of CTs in these clinically apparent cases. And I don't think we should do it. Now, can I ask you, in the community, how often when you call with a pretty obvious appendicitis and you say it's a pretty obvious appendicitis, do the surgeons say get the scan anyway? In our place, it's 100% of the time. Well, We're a residency. Everything depends on the age of the surgeon I speak to. If I'm talking to somebody who's my age, assuming they're still operating, (laughs) believe me, they listen to the story and they say, yeah, I'll take that appendix out. As soon as you're talking to a 30-year-old or a 32-year-old, they want to study, and that is a problem. Mel, you make a good point. What is the reality? Well, I think the reality is is that right now, probably depending on the hospital you look at in the data, 90-plus percent of patients who have their appendix removed are going to have a CT. But that is not the trend. That's not the way we should be driving this engine, and I think that we need to kind of step up to the plate and take some responsibility here and say, I don't think we need to irradiate this kid. The diagnosis is really quite clear. Please come in and see them. And when they say, well, I don't care. I want it anyway, then you order it. And the next time you make the same phone call and say, no, I don't think we should do it. I think you ought to see them. And we do it over and over and over again And because we need to drive a little modification of the current practice because I don't think the surgeons are as sensitive to radiation as we are. Well, I think it's useful from a QA point of view, if you can write on the chart, I saw the patient, I think they have appendicitis, called Mrs. Smith, she said get the CT scan and that was ordered, so that when you go back you can say who's really ordering their CT scans. But from a medical malpractice point of view, is there anything to learn here that surgeons do too many CTs? When this thing starts to bite us in the butt 20 years from now when everybody's got cancer, will having written it down make any difference? Well, I don't think that it's come to the point where anybody believes that everybody you operate on has got to have a positive appendix. Still, with all the CTs, there's going to be 5 to 7 to 9%, depending on whose study you read, that it's not active appendicitis at the time they operate. The point is, a clinical decision may be perfectly reasonable. And I don't know why these guys are afraid to operate. And now, with the newer techniques, I mean, we're not talking about opening the belly. We're talking about sticking in a tube pulling it out. I agree that the discussion we have just had has got very little to do with risk management. And I went on a tangent, and I apologize. I'm no, sorry. I think it's perfectly fine, but we should also bring it back to, is this a risk management issue? It's no, There are wider issues. We don't have to. But I can see that this has nothing to do with medical malpractice. It has everything to do with medicine in general. The yeah. only issue that relates to medical malpractice is trusting the CT over your clinical judgment. Right. That's it. And that's and I don't think that there's any reasonable expert in the country that is <clears> going to let you get away with the fact that oh, the CT scan was negative when they were clearly sick. If you send sick people home with belly pain and the scan's negative, you're just going to screw up. You're the, wrong. You're going to get sued. The, the problem is it's not the positive CT scan. 
that's never an issue. It's the negative scan. And as long as you don't believe the negative scan and you call it indeterminate and not negative, then I think you're okay. More than that, you got to tell the patient something. What are you going to walk in and say, well, the scan's negative, so you don't have an appendicitis? Truth is, if you still have an appendix in your body somewhere, could you have appendicitis? The answer is yes. So I don't think that this is the only big risk management mistake you can make is not believing the body laying in front of you. If it's sick, they are sick. Why would you send them home? Can I just ask a clinical question of you all guys then? My experience is, and the literature agrees with this, young adult male, I really think he has appendicitis. You're right, 98% of the time. But a young woman with belly pain, I think it's appendicitis, you're right 50% of the time. Is it reasonable to scan all of those? Or should we do ultrasound? Or should we watch them? What does the medical legal world say is the right thing? Because they're really hard to make a diagnosis in. Mel, in the EMA course this year, we have two 30-minute talks on just this topic. And CTs, abdominal pain, appendicitis. And there are two papers in our database that basically say that the only people who get benefit from a CT in the setting of suspected appendicitis are women below the age of 45. That's it. Men and children, no difference. And these are large studies. Now, I don't think people will blanketly say, okay, well, it's a male and we don't do it. But when you really look at the yield and return on investment, that's where it's at. They're talking about 20% error rate or higher in women under the age of 45. Older women, it's not an issue. Males and kids, not an issue. So, yes, there is a return on investment difference based on sex and age, but I don't really think that most people are using that to determine who or who ought not get studied. The other thing is, didn't you mention about ultrasound first? Yeah, should you go to ultrasound because they've got all those pelvic organs? I don't know what's going on down there. Let me take a look with some sound waves. I just read an editorial by an ultrasonographer that says, I don't understand this. The ultrasound should be done first in women who have got lower abdominal and pelvic pain. It is the study of choice to do in these cases, and people are just bypassing this and going right to CT. And that, you know, he says it's very difficult to defend. I think it's difficult to defend because of the fact that you're choosing to irradiate them when there's another modality that doesn't involve irradiation that is very, very helpful in lower abdominal pain and pelvic pain in women. And I think that that's the point. There is this philosophy of ultrasound first in virtually everybody who you think may have appendicitis or some kind of surgical condition. Now people say, well, it's a operator-dependent test, da, 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 I can't get it at night. All of those things are true, but if you look at the European literature, they routinely do ultrasounds. They've gotten very good at it. When you look at the sensitivity for ultrasound and huge meta-analysis, the sensitivity for ultrasound was 88%. A bunch of studies, the sensitivity was 95% for CT. So you're talking about a 6 or 7% absolute difference. One in 14 patients will get a benefit over that CT versus the ultrasound. So I think our radiologists in this country need to get more used to doing ultrasounds. And I think, therefore, we need to order more ultrasounds. And when they say, well, I really prefer a CT, fine, I still want the ultrasound. I want this test. I don't want to radiate my patient unnecessarily because they just need to get better than they are. All right, so I hear the community practitioner out there saying, I got this one young woman, and I'm not really sure what's going on, and I did an ultrasound, and it's negative. She ultimately turns out to have appendicitis, and I missed it. I sent her home. Will the expert say to Greg, 
why didn't you do the gold standard test, which is CT scan? By the way, I don't know who's saying it's the gold standard test. It's clearly not the gold standard test. What we know is, if that's the gold standard, then you miss on the gold standard test one out of 12 times. So to me, whenever they come up with that argument, my standard is, why did you send them home? Just because they have a negative ultrasound, they're still ill. That or you level with the patient. What a concept. We're honest and say, you know what? We're going to re-examine you in six hours and see how you're doing. And I think I've never seen a case where they told them, we'll see you back in four hours or six hours, refill the belly, then make a decision, just like we did in the old days, where they ever got sued. It's when you tell them something that's a lie, which is, it's not appendicitis. I don't think we can say that. The ultrasound first philosophy says, if the ultrasound is negative and you have a low clinical or intermediate clinical suspicion, you're done for the time being. Right. If the ultrasound is equivocal, and then you can order a CT in those cases. Any equivocal ultrasound would justify doing a CT. A normal ultrasound in somebody who has a high clinical suspicion, that might be another case where you would do it. But in the cases that low clinical suspicion, normal ultrasound, you've done a reasonable <coughs> job, and you've saved that person eight millisieverts. So it's not like it's neutral. Let me give you another view of that. Negative urine, negative pregnancy test, right lower quadrant pain with guarding and rebound. Why don't you just take their appendix out, even if it's a female? Now, okay, let's say you've done your ultrasound now. Ultrasound equivocal. You know what? They've still got peritonitis. I think today, with what the incidence of injury is and problems with the surgery are so small, why don't you just go in and take the appendix out? I really don't understand another way of doing that at this point. Before we move on to the next topic, <clears throat> I think that the only major risk management point here is do not rely on a negative CT to exclude this diagnosis when you have a high clinical suspicion. And what I also heard from Greg was that I don't have to do a CT if I've got an unclear patient, that that's not some kind of magic standard of care. I don't have to do that. And here's the real risk management point to me is be honest with the patient. Tell them may not be the point yet where we'd send you to the operating room. I wouldn't operate on my own child at this point, but we need to see you back. I think you only get in trouble when you're dishonest. If you say, can't be appendicitis. By the way, if a mother brings her child, her 16-year-old boy in with lower abdominal pain, what's she thinking about in her head? Appendicitis. If you don't mention the word appendicitis and talk to them the pros and cons, what you've done is cheated them out of talking about why they brought the child in. What are you concerned about? I think those people who have heard you talk about the difficulties of the diagnosis, I don't think those people sue. I think it's people who you've sloughed off and said it's not a problem, now they're unhappy. So we've spent 20 minutes talking about appendicitis, but that's not unreasonable, right, Greg? Because it's still in the top 10, top 5? Still in the top 10. Yeah. And you know what? As long as we all have an appendix down there, and you can have appendicitis between age, what, 1 and 101, it will still be a part of the discussions, I think, as we move on. Let's hit something else here, which is a hot button for me, and that's the normal CT in the headache patient. First of all, we order way too many CTs on headache patients. But if you meet the criteria, and the guy to read on this was John Edmeads. He was chairman of neurology at the University of Toronto. And he had the advantage of having the entire Ontario health plan database 
everybody in the province of Ontario for 20 years he looked at subarachnoid hemorrhage. There is only one factor here that was reproducible by a factor of 20. That is the rate of onset of this headache. When anybody had a headache that went as the thunderclap headache, the sudden onset to its worst in five minutes, the possibility of that being a subarachnoid hemorrhage was huge. To not have on that chart the onset of that headache, when it began, how it progressed, that's a medical legal mistake. Because you're going to have to make decisions about what you're going to do, and I don't think it's wise or cost-effective to be doing a CT on everybody with a headache. If you look at my place, there was a five times difference, five times, between who got CT scans of the head and who didn't. And if you look at the two people who were lowest, it was the two guys who were most involved, interested, and right about headache. So I think that it's not the ordering of the test, it's the selection of the patient. The other thing is, if you believe that they've got a headache secondary to a vascular problem, and you're not going to do that LP, I don't think you can defend that at this moment in time. There better be a decent note on that chart, and just this week, a case came into my desk, and it's a fight about what was said between the doctor and the patient and his wife when he refused to have a lumbar puncture after the CT. They gave him pain medicine. He went, had a CT scan, which was theoretically read as negative, and the doctor did not properly document the against medical advice aspects of that case. And now it's a fight. And we all get into this stuff, but I've tried to take that off the table. Assure them you're going to take away their pain, knock them out, do the LP, but if they're not wanting that LP, that chart better look like your final exam in medicine because these come back and it's not pretty. If you look at the downside on this case, this guy's a neurologic basket case at this point. By the way, the quality of the CT is improving and people always say, well, it's the older CTs that had the problem, that sort of thing. I'm not aware, and Rick, you're our literature guy here, I'm not aware of a study that says that we can now stop doing LPs on these patients. Well, I think, unfortunately, that is correct. Well, there was... Well, it hasn't been published yet, so I should shut up. But I know that one was presented at one of the Canadian meetings with a newest generation scanners and a few hundred patients, and they said they missed none. But until that's published, I should shut up. So I'll now shut up. See, but you don't know what you don't know. That paper is going to be dependent on how that study was set up. And I think that we have to be very careful with that sort of thing. It's not that I want to subject people to LPs, but you know what? It's the simplest test I do. I'd rather do an LP on a kid than start their IV. I think LPs are simple. We can take away their pain. We can knock them out. Just do it. But in the big, fat patient with a headache, <laughs> boy, it'd be nice to be able to say, I've got a really new generation scanner. I don't have to try and drop a 12-foot needle into that person's back and have to do it on a fluoro because that happened to me twice last week. We just couldn't get it. That was so then, huge. Then do this. <laughs> then present those papers. Let's talk about it as the new standard of care and as long as you're willing to talk about a concept which is un-American, which is the acceptable miss rate, then I'm willing to talk about this. But the acceptable miss rate, more than that, if you're presented with a patient who's got a little stiffness in their neck, had the sudden onset of a severe headache, are you not going to tamp that person? See, I think that takes a lot of guts. About two weeks ago, my daughter-in-law went into the ER on my recommendation in 
Phoenix, and I wish I could remember. Doctor, I'm really sorry I don't remember your name. I'd like to acknowledge you. So my son's there, and he has his laptop. Actually, he has this iPad jobber, Mm -hmm. and they have Wi-Fi in the hospital. And so he has his computer on, and my daughter-in-law's in in the bed, and he puts the (coughs) camera around, and I can see the entire room. And in comes the doctor, and I'm talking to the doctor. He sees me. I see him. He says he's a former student of Jerry Hoffman. I said, immediately get another doctor. (laughs) (laughs) He agreed that, you know, we need to do the CTLP. So she had sudden onset of headache? She had a sudden onset of headache while driving four days prior to her going to the ER. Mm. So That's really, a difficult case, by the way. It's really yes. hard to kind of, you know, shine <laughs> that one on. And my, it's your daughter-in-law kind of thing. My son would be really pissed if I screwed this up. <laughs> yeah. So he does the lumbar puncture. It's clear. And she gets the worst freaking post-lumbar puncture headache ever that she suffered with for four days before a blood patch was done, which immediately relieved her pain. Right. And we never see the consequences of our behavior. This is the second case our ER treated a friend of mine's, he's an ENT doc, treated his daughter, same study, same thing. We did a lumbar puncture. We thought we were so pristine. We did everything right. And then I find out like a week later that she wound up getting a blood patch too. So this is not all that benign. And the strange part about it is at the end of this, there's a huge bill. We have no idea why she had a headache. All we know is what she didn't have. And we made her worse. Well, everybody's now talking about what's the role of MRI in this. Certainly, it's really MRA of what we're talking about because you need to have a vascular disease needs a vascular diagnosis. The question is, is it reasonable and what's to do? And I think that there may be a point where we're going to do MRAs on certain of these people because what we're really looking for is not just the bleed, it's do we have something we can fix? And there's two ways to fix it with a coil or clip. And if we find something we can coil or clip, then we've done that person a reasonable favor. When we don't find those things, then there was just a rock star Mm. who had his... Michaels, right? Michaels, who had his subarachnoid hemorrhage, and of course, they can't find the site of that bleeding. He did not get a coiling or a clipping. What he got was, you know, tender loving care. And unfortunately, he didn't bleed again, but they don't know where he bled from. The thing, too, is although I don't think there's really any risk management... um, implications here. The real study to do for people who have headaches is MRIs. And the only one we're worried about is this bleeding one. And we've got some reasonable papers that say MRI picks up hemorrhages in the head as well. It is just not the standard of care. That transition hasn't been made. But, you know, brain tumors and abscesses and all that other stuff yeah, but is stop best a sec. done by an MRI. <clears throat> yeah, I understand that. But when you have brain tumors, first of all, headache is not the most common presenting complaint to brain tumor. And, you know, occasionally we could do something radical like examine the patient. You know, they have that usual list. But if you have an acoustic aroma, you have other symptoms. It's not just a headache. If you have a brain abscess, if you have an aneurysm, certain tumors, if you have hydrocephalus, you're going to have something called a physical finding. God, what a concept. I think we should do the test when we have the right indications for that test. The problem is this country is buried in negative studies. If I went down to your hospital, Rick, and looked at the number of negative MRIs of the brain and CT scans, I bet it would reach from San Pedro to San Diego, and it would be that many. We just overtest. 
on people who don't have physical findings. When's the last time you saw somebody with an optic glioma who had no finding? I think that's crazy. What about the use of MRI in place of the CT scan? This common belief that CT is much better for picking up blood than MRIs, but I know Rick has a paper here that says that maybe that's not true with the new techniques that they use with it. You know, there's flare and there's schmear and there's wing and there's bang, that maybe MRI is as good as CT scan. So if for some reason you couldn't do a CT scan or the patient refused it, then maybe you could do an MRI and have about the same sensitivity. You still might have to do the LP, of course. Well, see, but-, but that's the problem. If what we're doing is an MRI... And let's say it's just as good as the CT. Now you've got a symptomatic patient with a negative MRI. Does that mean that you don't have to do the LP? I'm not aware that that study's been published. And I'd be very interested to see somebody work on that, but I haven't seen it. Well, let's make it very clear. The standard of care currently is you need to do the lumbar puncture. Absolutely. Hopefully you'll use a, one of, or learn to use one of the pencil point needles so that you don't get post-LP headache situation, which, frankly, you're not even aware of. You think you did a great job, but you never find out about these cases. And the real risk management point is if you've done the CT, the patient's refusing, you better have a note that talks about the discussion you had, why they didn't have the LP, that you've advised them to do it, because otherwise you're going to be like the perfectly good emergency doctor who they sent me the case this week, and he's sitting there because he did not properly document what happened. You know, last year we did a whole thing on against medical advice and the five key points. You told them the diagnosis. You told them what might be wrong. You've assessed them to make sure that they had competence to be able to, capacity to know the kind of judgments they were making. You talked to the family. You gave them what the alternatives were. That's what I want to see on the chart if I have to go to defend you. What about the cases where you subtly talk the person out of that lumbar puncture? You know this person's a big boy. You know it's going to be hard to do that thing. You know there's going to be some blood in there when you do that thing. And you can subtly kind of twist a story that says, listen, I really don't believe you have anything, but to be complete, we need to do this. It can be painted the way you want to. And you're doing that? I'm not doing that. No, oh, okay. God, no. Because I'm just going to say, you're now admitting to being moral scum, Rick. <laughs> no, I want to, what if somebody was to do that? <laughs> well, that's exactly what this case is going to be about. The wife says, well, he mentioned it and then said, well, you can follow up with the neurologist. You can do this. You can do that. That's not the way the doctor remembers the discussion. It is the way the wife remembers the discussion. The husband would tell us how he remembered the discussion, but he hasn't got much brain left. And so it's going to be between the wife and the doc as to what was said in that encounter. Should we go on to plain films? Have we done <clears throat> enough head CT stuff? Let's yep. talk about plain films. Now, actually, there's a series of topics here when we're talking about back pain and plain films that we've actually done many times before. So let me quickly summarize. Remember when somebody comes in with back pain, you're thinking about the back pain red flags. You're thinking about things like fractures, tumors, spinal cord problems, vascular issues, and infections. That's what should go through your head when you're seeing a back pain patient. For each of those diseases, there's a series of questions and physical examination findings you should look for and exclude, and they're the red flags. And we won't go through them right now, but the key thing you need to remember 
to begin with is that the diagnostic modality for most of those diseases is not the plain film. The go-to imaging is not the plain film except for maybe fractures. And even then, if you're really worried, you're going to go to CT and MRI is probably even better. Yeah, but and the plain back f- fracture is relatively rare. Right. I mean, how many of those do you actually see unless they're old and it's compressive sorts of things? But the average guy who falls in the parking lot does not have some sort of terrible fracture in his back. So if you have somebody with back pain and you're worried that they have one of these red flags, then the imaging modality the vast majority of the time is actually MRI. If I want to find a tumor, MRI is the best. If I want to find a spinal cord infection, MRI. If I want to find just spinal cord pressure, some badness within the spinal cord, it's MRI. If I want a kind of vascular problem, well, maybe CT scans a little bit better than that. But MRI will work for that as well. So MRI is the first thing to think about in these patients. So if you find a red flag, the next question is not, oh, I'm going to get an x-ray right now. It's what ultimate imaging modality do I need? And it's an MRI most of the time. And I don't want anybody to get the idea that shooting a plain film of the back helps defend them if any of those other things exist. I know people get the plain film about 90% of the time because they want to amuse the patient and the family. They put on, quote-unquote, the show. The problem is, how many of the people with back pain that you see actually need, fall into that group, where they need to have a plain film? And I think it's vanishingly small. I think plain films of the back are becoming the blunderbuss of our era. I mean, I don't even know what they're for anymore. If there's a 25-year-old in there with soreness in the back, I don't know what you find on those films. And I think we just have to be honest about that. Yeah, it's just not a test that you need to do very often. The only In the abstracts course a few years ago, we did back pain, and one of the things that said, well, if you've got a kid who's a gymnast or a golfer and you're worried about spondylolisthesis, plain films might be actually useful in a young adult who's doing a lot of hyperextension. You don't have to do the MRI. That's really the only bad disease you're looking for, and that'll help the orthopedic surgeon decide what to do. But that's a pretty small group of patients. Yeah. <laughs> it, I'll tell you what, those aren't the people that I see with back pain. In fact, the majority of people I see with low back pain, I do a standard exam. No matter how many times we've seen them, I put them through the same examination. Because if you don't, that's where I see the lawsuits, is when John Smith, known drug addict, has been in 42 times for his low back pain. That's a hot button for doctors. And what they do is just say, well, give him his pain shot and let him go. That's the danger here. And that's where we get sued. Well, another thing we think about with back pain and neck pain, we think about sawara and sawara, which is spinal cord injury without radiographic abnormality. If you're really worried about that, then the right test again is MRI. Now, we used to believe that this was a disease of children because that's the original PANG study had all these kids where supposedly they imaged them, they couldn't see anything, and then later on down the road with some trivial injury, they had these horrible spinal cord lesions. And he said, well, it was spinal cord injury without radiographic abnormality. I think that really threw us off. I think that was published in like 1984, that paper. It threw us off for years being worried about this, but when you go back, they did not do very good imaging. They did plain films, which weren't very good. Half of them were inadequate. They didn't do CT scans. They weren't doing um, <laughs> they did, MRIs. They did flexion extension views, right? It was just a joke. And the Nexus study, one of the things that came out of Jerry's giant Nexus study was that Sawara was much more common in adults compared to kids. It was grandma that fell over who didn't have a fracture but had spinal cord injury that was much more common than this syndrome in children. By the way, if you look at Swaro, kids or adults, 
if we look at the study done at Shock Trauma in Baltimore, they asked this question, is there any reason to get the MRI tonight? They've done the CT, there's no fracture, there's nothing they're going to do surgically. Their conclusion was checking for squirrel might be useful down the road, but there was almost nothing they were going to do that night from an operative standpoint to change the outcome of swirl. So I think it's a much different question. Is there an emergent need to do the MRI at that moment versus we've looked at the CT, there's nothing you're going to pin, screw, wire, or align. What are you going to do? Well, I don't know that you know that. There's always this issue of decompressive laminectomies. We're not in a position to make those diagnoses. This is a really, 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 really serious condition, and nobody's going to have any sympathy because you didn't want to have a stat MRI. Wait a second. You didn't want to make a phone Wait, call. Rick, are you saying that you've got a study that says decompressive laminectomy no, is I, the study of choice I, what I'm in saying swirl? Is, what I'm saying is we don't know what a neurosurgeon would do in these cases or how urgently would do them. I only point out that when Shock Trauma put all their stuff together, and they're a pretty reasonable outfit, and if you look at all of those studies from around the country, nobody's going in to do anything on those people acutely. Yeah, so I agree with Greg. If the CT scan doesn't show an operative lesion, the MRI is incredibly unlikely to show an operative lesion because a lot of these people have cord edema. I can't fix that. They have blood within their cord. They can't suck the blood out. So unless there's something pressing on the cord, that's kind of the practice where we are as well. That as long as the 3D reconstruction of a CT doesn't show an operative injury, MRI can be delayed because it's prognostic. It's not really help you with therapy. If you have misalignment of bone, if you have a disc or something pushing in on the cord, both of which are seen by CT, then they have a chance of immediate operation causing some difference. All I can say is, I don't want all of our people out there to believe that that night, everybody has to have an MRI when the CT is negative. Well, you know, underneath all of this, I believe that we should be transitioning to more MRIs than we're doing and less CTs. Abdominal pain, pregnancy, these conditions, headaches, whatever those kinds of things are. Ultimately, I believe that the MRI machine will be, 10 years from now, we'll look back and say, you did what? CT? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you keep reading these radiologist editorials saying MRI is getting faster and better and open, and but I can tell you my experience is it still takes a damn long time to do an MRI. Until they can get the speed of those scans faster, we're still going to be doing CTs, but I agree with you. I would love these open, fast MRIs to be able to take the place. It would just solve a lot of problems. Everybody's looking for the Star Trek machine, Bones machine that they put people in and just waved over. Yeah, yeah, and it did it. Exactly. We don't have it yet. And I wouldn't suggest that MRIs to that point. You know, in our new helical CTs, we're looking at seven seconds for the brain and another seven for the neck, and it's all done. There's no MRI that's doing it that way. And if you have to sedate, for example, a child to go into that machine, you've introduced another level of risk in the process. Now, the rest of what we could talk about, but we just did it last month, so I'm not going to do it, is quarter equina syndrome, spinal yeah. epidurolepsis. We've done it many times. Let me just, though, dovetail on one thing you just said, because last week I had a number of very sick patients, and one of them was this IV drug user who had back pain, and I got you know hassled by the radiologist about ordering ridiculous tests. And we said, no, no, we're going to get the gold standard. We're worried about a spinal epidural infection, so we're getting an MRI. But he had so much pain and was squirrely because he was also withdrawing from heroin, no matter how much morphine we gave him, that ultimately he went up there twice 
and it was taking a long time, this was an hour to get this thing done or more because we did thoracic and lumbar, that he had to actually ultimately get intubated and be put on a propofol drip so that he would stop moving so we could get the study. So <laughs> that is, again, the problem with these lengthy MRIs. If we could get that scan time down to 10 minutes, maybe I could get away with it. But for an hour, an hour and a half, we just couldn't sedate the guy enough in the MRI to get it done. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is a problem. And sometimes it's interesting that doctors always underrate that problem because we're not the nursing staff who has to be over there with them in the machine when they're thrashing and moving and giving them crap. It is a problem. Ask the nurses about it. And people are saying, you paralyzed and intubated and put a guy on a propofol drip to get an MRI? I'm like, yep, because the alternative was to keep unloading huge doses of fentanyl and morphine by a nurse with no airway protection, and that seems like a bad idea. That's a rare circumstance, but sometimes you've got to do it. And thankfully, because I was getting heat from the radiologist for this. Thankfully, he had the disease. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to an area where I do think that there is some really controversial points of view regarding neck films and C-spines, and is the C-spine x-ray dead compared to the CT? Is Jerry yeah. Hoffman anywhere around? No, he's because not. you could get a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah, we could get in trouble. Rick, as you're well aware, this year in the EMA course, we have actually concentrated on exactly this issue. The study of choice if you're looking at the neck. And I think that there are two studies that dominate the landscape here that we have to take into account. The first one is Nexus. That was Jerry's study. It looked at a total of, I think, 36,000 people. You have to look at a lot when you're talking about neck fractures. Why? Because there aren't very many of them. So you have to have a reasonable base. And then, of course, there's Ian Steele's study from Canada, the Canadian C-spine rolls. And those are really the two big ones. And there's going to be some differences here, but let's pick out the spots where they agree. And I think the first one is what reasonable ER docs have been doing forever, and that is you can clinically clear C-spines in a lot of people. If they're awake, and when you ask them, got pain in your neck? Not till they strap me to this board. And you feel them, and they're on painful. Those people don't need films. I think if you look at Jerry's work, if you got people without symptoms... What did they have in 36,000 patients? One, maybe two, who may have had a fracture, and they didn't have a fracture that you'd do anything about. And so I think there is reasonable clearing. And if all of us are honest, I think 70, 75% of the patients I see can be cleared clinically. The question is, what are you going to do after that? And if you look at the Nexus data, there was no question that there were about a third to maybe 40% of the fractures that were missed with plain films. See, I think plain films of the neck, if you genuinely believe that someone has something, the study of choice is the helical CT. And here's a few reasons. Number one, it's cheaper. Not when we're talking about charge, but cost. It takes less tech time. They're over at the machine less time. If you're worried about the safety of the patient to move them around for various views, you don't have to do that with a helical CT. You stick them in, you turn the thing on, it shoots the picture. It's better at picking up the fracture. It's faster. We cause less damage. Hello? If you really believe somebody has something, they come in from their accident, it hurts when you touch it, and they don't want to move the neck, I don't know why you do anything else but a helical CT at this point in time. Now, I know there are people who have other views of this, but I believe what they're doing is the social 
x-ray of the neck at that point in time. Because if you really think you had it, if it was your kid, Rick, and he had pain following that injury, what study do you want? Well, that's what the issue is here. We're straddling the literature that says CT is clearly better with community practice that says most people are going to get a plain film when they're really not nearly as good in picking up the small percentage of cases that do have fractures. And then you're going to irradiate the thyroid, you're going to irradiate the breast, and you know, our radiologists at our hospital said, you guys are ordering a lot of CTs of the neck now. This transition is occurring. And from a medical legal point of view, there's a pitfall here. I think the pitfall is very small, and that is, first of all, knock out the 75 or 80% of people who don't need any film and have the courage to say that. I'm sorry, you don't need a film. That's okay. Then on the next 20%, let's say grandma comes in from her auto accident and has pain in her neck. Light her up. What are the chances that she's going to go on to anything in the next 10 years before she drops dead? You let grandma go home with an unstable fracture of the neck, you've got a problem here. You know, I think about this all the time. I have a grandchild. If she was in a traumatic injury where she couldn't move her neck, hurt to move, I'd have the CT. I want the definitive study to know what's going on. By the way, if she does have on plain film a fracture, what do you think the neurosurgeon wants next? The CT. So I don't think we're saving anything here. This drives me crazy. People who get a CT and plain films of the neck. That doesn't make any sense. You're right. The community standard is if you came into the ER, you got to get something. There's you know, Cracker Jacks in a box and you know the prize and all that kind of stuff. You got to get something for your money. I think it's wrong. It's indefensible anymore. It's like getting flexion extension views of the neck. It went the way of the buffalo, and we need to talk about that and be honest about it. I don't want to suggest, though, that it is the standard of care to go from nexus to CT, because I don't believe that. I think that there are those low-risk, whiplash-like patients where they're not quite nexus negative, but I know that they don't have a fracture, but I have to image them because they're not nexus negative. This is the social x-ray. Let's just be honest yeah, about it. Yeah, it's a social x-ray. I know it's going to be negative. I have to do it. What I learned from the nexus study is that then if I do that plain film, it better be absolutely perfect. Because Nexus said plain films are completely fine for ruling out fractures, but they better be absolutely perfect. If there's any question, you have to scan them. And they're not perfect. How many times have you looked at the C-spine film of an 80-year-old and you're trying to figure Never. out yeah, and what you're looking at? The other thing is, for a lot of us, I know, Mel, that you always have a radiology resident available to look at the films. Most of us in community hospitals at 10 o'clock at night, we're looking at plain films. You know, all of our ultrasounds and CTs, that sort of thing, are read regionally somewhere, and the results are sent back. But if I'm looking at those films, see, that's the key. It's who's looking at the film. If you look at the Nexus trial, those were looked at by people who were pretty high-level folks in reading films. Most of us feel uncomfortable with that i'd rather have the ct yeah well i still want to say that i don't think it's a stand of care to do ct but i agree with all of your comments and i think the best thing you do is clear people clinically that are really low risk but then if you really want to know i'd do a ct and that's you know i can't tell you actually the last time i ordered a plain film series of the neck it's been really? a while it's been really a while. really really that's yeah. interesting yeah. because you've gone from no x-ray 
CQCP CT. with nothing in the middle. And that's, and that's the whole point. I have a very bizarre kind of practice because even within USC, I tend to just work in the resuscitation area. So we have a lot of old people and a lot of motorcycle accidents. But I've still got to believe that there's a little whiplash in the 20-year-old that's not quite nexus negative, <coughs> that the social x-ray is better than the social CT. And when I have the 20-year-old off the motorcycle, there wouldn't be alcohol involved in any of those, would there? <laughs> oh, heaven forbid. That would never be a part of the process. It takes me 14 seconds when they're in the machine to do the head and the neck and answer the questions. And quite frankly, I think it's hard to defend. I'll tell you what's very hard to defend. Somebody who sent them over for a CT of the head and it's got plain films of the neck. If their head hit that badly, and you believe that there's something in their neck, shoot the real study. I don't think it makes sense. Rick, what do you think? No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, boy. It just makes me anxious that we'd be saying that you have to do a CT scan, that plain films are dead. I well, don't think they're quite dead, even though they're, they're dead not- by practice. <laughs> now, wait a second. They are dying. You don't disagree with the fact that if you have a tech who has to move patients around for various views of the neck. The other thing is, now they're a fat patient. Now they got to shoot a swimmers. Now they got to shoot this or that. You know what? <laughs> CTM. But the dance, I mean, the this sucks. It gives me great internal anxiety because of the radiation from CT scans. It's so much more than plain films. We are going to hurt a lot of people. Wait, wait, if we, the, if the, we do a lot of CT scans, we're going to hurt people. Well, the CT of the neck is about 150 times the radiation of a chest x-ray. The CT of their belly is 450 times to 500 times the radiation. If you look at the millisieverts which are given, we do a lot worse with those things. There's a very good study in the database now about people who are mid-zone trauma and the amount of millisieverts which have been shot at them. And it's crazy. It's all insane. But my concern is that CT will be swapped out for plain x-rays and people who really don't need them but the doctors don't have the testosterone to say you really don't need an x-ray so that there will not be this middle ground they will go right to ct and the thyroid is particularly sensitive to this radiation doses and in fact we did a paper not too long ago where they had a little shielding of your thyroid gland that you would lay over top of it to deal with this issue but from i'm just saying rick what we're talking about now is the social x-ray and as long as you don't lie to yourself as long as you say, well, I don't really care, and they're probably not going to have one, and yada, yada. But there are certain groups of people who, if you think you're going to look at that plain film of the neck, and I'm talking about the obese, I'm talking about the elderly, I'm talking about people who those films are not easy to read. I think we're kidding ourselves here. Moving on, plain films and scaphoid fractures, you can mess those up too, right? They don't even count in scaphoid fractures. I mean, what we know is, if I was running a practice in the UP of Michigan, somebody kid came in with no obvious displacement of the wrist, I'd put him in a splint, see how he did over the next week. I wouldn't shoot any film, because the truth is, if I shoot a film and I don't see anything, I can't tell him it's not broken. But, you know, the scaphoid is one bone where we do not have a gold standard. There is no gold standard as to whether it's broken, because there is no one test, at least to my understanding, the reading of that literature, that actually tells us that. Everybody said, well, we'll get a bone scan. Well, those are 10% wrong. We'll do a CT scan. Well, that's a little better, but there's no perfect test for the scaphoid. If it hurts and it's there, splint them up. 
see if they get better. Well, you know, I personally have a hard time with that logic, honestly. It's not easy to wear, depending on what kind of splint. Some people think you need to be in a long arm with a scaphoid, potentially. I don't know whether that's true or not, well, but some people I, I, think... I think that literature is all over the map, and it's the AP motion and the side-to-side motion you want to stop, and you can do that without going up to the elbow. For a medical legal tape, the idea is to splint these things, and it doesn't really matter whether you splint them for the two weeks or you make the definitive diagnosis on the first visit by doing an MRI. I got a paper here that says that 22 studies say that the sensitivity of MRI is 98%. So I think that that is the best that we have. It's not perfect, but it's the best that we have. But whether that should be done routinely on these cases, if it's me, frankly, I want to know today. I don't want to be put in a splint for a couple of weeks and deal with all of that grief. I want to know today, thank you to the extent I can. The truth, though, is you still don't know perfectly. There's 2%, even with the MRI, that are not picked up. I'll take those chances. Thank you very much. Well, I think we have to, as a medical legal tape, talk about what's happening in the community. If you shoot a plain film, as long as you tell them it's not broken, put them in a splint, and then when they come back, because 80% of these people in five days or what? They're normal. They've taken their splint off. They're doing nothing. But for those who are still painful, I think the next test then, Rick, you're right, is the MRI. Just go to the correct test. I think this year for the EMA Talks, we put together about 30 papers on this issue. And as you watch these go through, the people to watch are, of course, the British, because they're concerned about the total societal cost, not the cost of the study. So they want to know, how long is this guy off of work? All these other questions. And so you're right. Get to the answer as soon as you can. And we know we have that huge group who in the first three or four days get better and need nothing. Anything beyond that, I think the MRI is the study of choice. So maybe it totally depends. Like most of this stuff, it depends on your practice setting. If you have rapid, easy access to MRI, somebody comes in, fallen outstretched hand, they got a little snuff box tennis, you're not sure, MRI negative, you're probably done follow-up. If you're at a place in Alaska and you, the MRI is 12 hours away, stick them in a splint for three or four days, then take it off, examine it completely normal, you're probably done. Right. But for that person who got his plain film and it's normal... What you can't tell them is that it's not broken. In fact, I think the best routine is to say, good news, there's no reason for a pin, a screw, or a wire at this moment. However, there can be fractures we do not see. That will buy you off of more medical legal problem than I've ever seen. In my department, we never say that they've got a strained wrist. Right. Yeah. And actually, I should have done the first part of that which is i'll x-ray you first if broken easy splint after the orthopedic surgeon it's the x-ray negative tender ones we're talking about see i think x-ray negative radiology is the only problem in emergency medicine as soon as it's positive we kind of know what and we know who's going to do it not us all right before we move on i think that we should just make it clear that the goal of this session was to make it clear to you that you have to order the right study. You need to know the limitations of the studies, and you cannot negate your clinical judgment when the study is negative. You have a tiebreaker that is needed when you have two differing points of view, your clinical assessment and the official reading of the CT or whatever it is. Because I see people getting in trouble with this because of undue reliance on something that is called a test. Okay. Rick, we have some mailbag things to take care of here. And we've had some really excellent 
questions sent in by folks. Obviously, you're listening, you're thinking. Jim Menching, is that how you pronounce that? I don't know. Menching. Uh, Menching. How do you think, Mel? How do you go Menschwing. Well, uh, uh, Jim, <laughs> if we butchered your name, hate us, send us an email, we'll take care of it. He said, is there an appeals process for cases where the verdict is obviously wrong? Well, <laughs> you know, the problem with that, Jim, is that obviously wrong to whom? What is the success rate? I'm assuming that in the insurance company makes the call based on money, not the merits of the case. Well, being the president of an insurance company, let me tell you, Jim, yes, we do make some decisions based on money. And if we didn't do that, we'd all be screwed. There is a process in every state where the judge can set aside an award by the jury and ask that the case be retried. It is a rare event. There's a second avenue, and that's the appeals court process. But remember, the appeals court looks at only one thing. Was there an error, an appealable error, in the actual process of the trial? For example, was someone allowed to speak as an expert who doesn't actually meet the state's standard as an expert? Did somebody give opinion testimony that was egregious? These things are often appealed and then the appeals court can make a decision. Unfortunately, when 12 people have spoken, your peers, your fellow citizens have said something, it is not that often which they come back and put the award aside. And so the real hope is at the appeals court for some technical error in the process. Second question, Jim's ER has a pharmacist review for all EP medication orders. Now, it can't be for all orders. He can't decide that epinephrine will or will not be given. He can't decide whether certain other medications will be given that are true emergencies. He said, given the limited number of pharmacists available to do this, he is concerned about undue delays in the initiation of antibiotics, given the importance of rapid treatment as stressed by David Talon. Of course, David was very kind, was here on the show and spoke about that. Jim, there's ways around this, and I'm interested to see what the boys here say, but a lot of places that have pharmacist review have also said there are certain drugs which can be given to meet these needs. You can agree in advance that the first two drugs or three drugs that may be given in a pneumonia will be this one, this one, and this one. And so we've already been through the review process. We've approved these two or three. You can take one of those based on allergy and start the medication. But you realize we're now being rated by the government as to how quickly we get certain of these things going. No, I agree with you fully. It's kind of strange. There are these hospitals that have pharmacists in the department. They review drugs and they do consultations. But the idea of reviewing every drug in advance, given an ER patient, just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And I do think that there is obviously the potential for undue delays. And I think that you nicely pointed out that if you're in that bind, that you should have the authority to give certain drugs that are mutually agreed upon immediately. From a medical legal standpoint, the number one issue in any infectious disease is time of suspicion to time of first antibiotic. Mm -hmm. And it is rare that anybody is fighting over minor differences in the various antibiotics. You know, this pharmacist in the emergency department, it's not just about 
giving drugs in the acute setting, it's giving drugs that in a more not-so-acute setting. But it's also turns out that one of the biggest places where there's errors in medicine is in our prescribing. And one of the areas that these pharmacists can really help you is before the patient gets to the pharmacy, they actually review what you've written down with you and with the patient. And we had Clinton Coyle, who is an error expert from Harbour, come to us and say the error rates on prescribing drugs for patients from the emergency department are unbelievably high, like 25% or more. So this is an area where pharmacists may be able to significantly Uh, reduce your risk. Careful here. When he says 25%, that means 25% of the people got something they're allergic to, 25% of the people got inadequate dose or too much of a dose. or what? It's, it's everything. It's the wrong names on the thing. You gave them a drug which is going to interact with their warfarin. Uh, you gave them a drug where they said they're allergic to it. It's like every possible complication there. So I might have the number wrong, but the important point is that there's a lot of errors that occur with those things. So we have pharmacists in our department, and I love them. And they don't get in the way. When you've got a cardiac arrest, it's not like they say, now, hold on a second. I don't know if you should be using that automatate to intubate that patient or giving that epinephrine to that dead person. It's not how it works. Well, do they approve every albuterol dose you give? No. We use them for complicated patients when there are drips going, when we need help, we say, come and help. But you see, that's the beauty of the situation. You employ their expertise when you need it. This is the dog wagging the tail not the tail wagging the dog. Right, but there was this move about three years ago where the Joint Commission wanted every drug reviewed by a pharmacist before it was given, and I hope that this hospital where Jim worked has got the news that that was successfully killed. Actually, Dr. Bucatta was a big part of destroying that animal. Now, let's go on to number three here. Yeah. Is it helpful or harmful to have system problems used as a part of your defense? We touched on this in one of the previous episodes where we talked about if it's overcrowded, if it's turned to stool, if it's essentially Haiti North, if it's that sort of situation, what are you going to do? Some people would say this is the way they live every day. It's nothing different. But the truth of the matter is, if you think that all of our EDs are created equal, you're wrong. Some places see, what, two patients an hour. Some places see 20 patients an hour. And even those that see two patients an hour may have 20 patients this hour. And so if you are overwhelmed, I think that it is not irrational to put something down that lets people know the situation you were in that night. Even if you wrote down 15 people in from an auto accident, we've had that situation in a small ER, 15 people. At least you've conveyed something on that chart as to what the situation was at that moment in time. Yeah, if there's the reasonable man or woman principle on the jury, then I think it's reasonable to say this was an extraordinary circumstance. So uh, the problem is that if you've got chronic ED overcrowding, which he perhaps was suggesting here, that doesn't help you anymore because you need to fix that. Right. Your administrators need to fix that. This is the plane crash that occurs outside. This is not the chronic ongoing, I see too many patients in my waiting room every night. And in fact, it's been brought up that it is the obligation of the medical director of the department to bring to the attention of the administration that we are running uh, chronically an unsafe and potentially dangerous department. And that would be viewed by the administration as one of your obligations. However, Obviously, that sounds great, but you could also be viewed as, here comes the complainer again. Jim brings that point up. He says he notes that when these problems are pointed out, even in the most polite manner, and I'm sure Jim is very polite, 
doctors get labeled as disruptive with an associated risk to your job. Now, I think this can be overplayed as well, and it isn't always the case. But Jim, if you have to point this out occasionally, keep doing it, buddy. Because it, it it probably is an important thing to talk about at some point in time. He lists four beers, all worthy of our attention, and notes that they all require a bottle opener. Uh-oh. You know what my favorite training we haven't, we can do? Well, we'll be doing wine of the month later, and I'll talk about it more then. But the screw top bottle of wine, I'm liking that a lot. I like to get into that fast. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that in Wine of the Month. Let's but, talk about Brian Romis's letter because yeah. Brian was at UCLA with me. He's actually a couple of years behind me, and he is an avid listener of this program. And he has a very good question. Look, if I'm the triage doc and I'm writing some quick orders before the patients go back because the waiting room's pretty full, and then the patient goes back, and then the ER doc in the back screws up the case, am I liable because I started the workup? How does that work? You will be a part of the case. There is no subtraction rule in medical malpractice. We never subtract people. There's only an addition rule. We add people. So if you started the process, you will be responsible for your acts or omissions. That is, whatever you did, you're responsible for. Now the truth is, if you start people out, it's almost always the people in the back who are going to take the big load here because they've gotten everybody in they've got the testing done they're the ones who put it together to make a decision but don't think your name won't be there bottom line is this I've spent thousands of dollars from an insurance company getting people's names off of charts who weren't even there that day so don't think if you were there you're gonna get off the hook on these cases Brian works at Kaiser so he shouldn't have to worry should he does Kaiser have no lawsuits is it really all arbitrated no, it, we should ask somebody from Kaiser. That, that's not exactly true. You cannot sign away right, all right. of your rights, mm-hmm. and they discourage it. They have other methods of taking care of it, but they uh, have black minivans with men with guns. Yeah, and, yes, that's <laughs> a, the black helicopters. But that is not the case. David Williams talks about a case in Wisconsin: seventeen point four million dollars. Excuse me, seventeen point what? That's the entire wealth of the state of Wisconsin. That's a lot of cheese, baby. (laughs) Well, it is potentially the uh, largest. Stop. All of our listeners from Wisconsin, that was a joke. We love Wisconsin. We're cheeseheads. We like it. One of the largest malpractice awards in Wisconsin, $17.4 million. It involved a 17-year-old who wound up getting 89 surgeries for a bowel resection problem who ultimately died. And the whole issue was... Do house staff get exonerated as because they're house staff? No. And the idea here was, we've brought this up before. In some states, basically, they say, okay, you're a trainee. You're expected to give the same quality care as a staff member. This is a training issue, a supervision issue, and they basically sue the training program and the faculty and all of those people. Exactly. If you are the physician of record, they have billed in your name with your provider number don't you ever back away and say well the resident did that and it's not my fault because now what you're doing is admitting to a federal crime that is they build and you didn't provide the service now if you're going to be involved in a case and that resident is unsure or you're not sure about what's being said the attending has to get in there and take a look at it you know I think in emergency medicine we've come a long way on this The attendings now see those cases and make a decision. God help you if you're going to leave this to some child to make a decision. Who was this? This was a first-year resident 
There's the height of science, who decided the patient had constipation and was a whiner and did not get the staff surgeon in to see him. You know what? The point that David was making is, in this case, the resident was successfully sued and was not released from the case based on the premise that we talked about. But you've got to remember that the resident is the employee of the hospital. So as he fell into this as the hospital employee model, but I'm sure the attending physician, and I don't know what the situation is there. He may work for the hospital, he may not, but none of those names are going to get dropped off the list, I'll tell you that. Let's do one more straightforward, pretty easy one. Sarah Lohler, a PA, we have actually PAs listening to this thing. We do. She notes a patient came in who was a psychiatric, very violent, striking out, combative. The security guards were called. Some hospital equipment was damaged in this altercation, and they basically hauled her out and took her to jail. And she said, how do you stand on that? She said, I don't even know whether her blood sugar was 10 or not. I did talk to her briefly, and she seemed to be lucid. And she had a psychiatric history, but they took her off to jail. And my sense is, frankly, you can't do that. You don't know whether this person has an organic brain syndrome, a chemical toxicity. And the fact of the matter is, is that they may die in jail. The fact is, I think you have an obligation to do a medical screening exam. If it means that you have to restrain them, drug them, whatever it takes, you can't send them to jail. Yeah, I think that's right. If the security people want to be there, keep her in bed, hold her down, That's all perfectly fine, but you have an obligation to say, is the abnormal behavior secondary to a medical problem? And everybody sitting at this table has seen the 12 blood sugar. We've all seen the 400 ETOH. We've all seen this set and another thing. By the way, I've seen it in the other direction too, the 800 blood sugar, who is a little bizarre, speaking a little strangely, fighting out, and they actually resist you from doing things. You know, Rick, you couldn't be more correct. You have an obligation. And by the way, if that requires force, then we employ it. I'm a believer in the Jack Bauer theory of the emergency department. You're going to hit him hard, fast, find out what's wrong, because anything else, you're in hell. When she goes to jail and they find her the next day in a lump when they do rounds, then whose fault is it? We've got a couple of other letters. We really don't have time to get to them today. And Greg, your cases. We'll have to do your cases some other time. Well, we'll have to do them next month. Do you have a wine you want to tell us about? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. We're getting a lot of discussions. In fact, I think we should just change this. Why don't we just make it wine monthly with a little bit of risk management in the end? Because people are really into the, the wine. I think much more than the medical malpractice. Well... I've got a great wine for you. One of our listeners wrote in and is very interested in doing some regional wines. I agree with him that we should not be doing the great expensive wines on the show. We'd do something you could buy. So I'm going to turn you on to one which is terrific, which is a Riesling, German. It's by George Brewer from Rudesheim. Now, I've actually been to Rudesheim. I was there for the wine festival. And my wife tells me I had a wonderful time. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't remember. Yeah, you, you know. And uh, somebody said via papers about you. But whatever it is, the Riesling, the GB Sham, is terrific. You can get it for 18 bucks a bottle. And this is a great white wine, a great Riesling. You and your 18 bucks a bottle. Okay, here's mine. It's Chris, C-R-I-S, I think it is. It's a screw top, and it's from Costco. 
and it's nine bucks fifty, and it's good. And by the way, the Germans have now gone over. You'll notice that even their expensive wines, a hundred buck a bottle wines, they've gone to these new pressurized screw tops. I think that with white wines, particularly the day of the cork are rapidly diminishing. We're essentially all heading back to Annie Green Springs and Boone's Farm Apple. Yeah, Portugal's in big trouble. Is that where all the cork comes (laughs) from? That's where the cork comes from. All right, guys, this is the July issue of Risk Management Monthly. Thank you all for listening, and thank you guys for participating. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.